All right, well, welcome back to our study of systematic theology. We are now on session number six. We're going to be looking at the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. Just a brief review, we've looked at the introduction of systematic theology, scope and purpose of it. Then we looked at general revelation and natural theology, and special revelation, that is Scripture. Last time we looked at the inspiration and authority of Scripture, and now we're on to infallibility and inerrancy. Next time we will look at canonicity and uh, look at why um, the early church chose what they chose to make up the Bible and the good reasons they had for that. Um, so I think splitting up in two sessions worked well, so we'll do that again. We'll go through the overview of what we're looking at and studying tonight, and then we'll pause and, and watch uh, our video, and then we'll come back for a review and, and discussion of it. Um, so infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, it's very much tied to the inspiration of Scripture. Um, the traditional view is uh, that um, it is divinely inspired and therefore is infallible and inerrant. So you can see there's a direct correlation between divinely inspired and being infallible and inerrant. Um, with the rise of higher criticism, especially in re recent years, um, inspiration of Scripture has come under fire, and as a result, also the infallibility and inerrancy is also criticized. Um, in fact, one criticism is that uh, the inerrancy view only came about in the 17th century with what they called uh, Protestant scholasticism, and that uh, corresponded with the Age of Reason. Um, and that the Bible writers and reformers um, themselves didn't hold this view. That uh, they, they themselves were unaware of such a, a view of inerrancy of Scripture. However, we see that uh, Luther, although he never said the word inerrancy, um, he did say, and, and we're quoting here, that Scriptures never err. Um, so what is the difference between inerrant and never erring? It's pretty much the same thing. Um, so this is a false view of the reformers certainly held to inerrancy of Scripture, and also earlier theologians as well uh, claim such concepts. And then we look at, uh, so what is the Bible's view of itself? And uh, that, that is important, and we'll look at why. Um, there are other books, of course, that claim to be divinely inspired. You can look at the Book of Mormon or the Quran as a couple of examples um, we, uh, to hold that the Bible is divinely inspired uh, because it says so is a circular argument. Um, and you can see how that worked. We can't say that the Bible is divinely inspired because the Bible says it's divinely inspired. Um, if we stick to that shallow argument, then we would have to admit the same thing about the Book of Mormon or the Quran because it also says they are divinely inspired. So we have to dig deeper than that. Um, so, uh, we, uh, it is important, however, to understand that the Bible does claim its own divine inspiration. Um, otherwise, such claim would be external and therefore uh, potentially inerrant if it's external. So, uh, it, it is important that it does claim itself to be in divinely inspired, but that is not the sole and only reason why we believe it to be divinely inspired, and we'll get into more uh, here in a minute. Um, infallible, what, what does it mean to be infallible? Uh, it means it cannot fail, 
Uh, it is indefectible. It is incapable of making a mistake. It is a infallibility would be a higher term than inerrancy. Inerrancy means uh, without error. And to give an example of this, uh, man can create, at least in a limited sense or limited areas, something inerrant, meaning something without error. For example, a student can receive 100 on a test and not miss a single question. That would be an inerrant test, right? They made no error in their answers on the test. But that, <clears throat> that did not mean that divine inspiration was required for them to be able to get 100 on their test. Um, you, and to show this, that same test taker could therefore take the next test and fail, or at least make a 90 or a 95, and it's not inerrant. They made an error. So just because they were inerrant on one particular test doesn't mean that they are infallible, incapable of making an error. So you can see why infallible is a, is a higher term than inerrant. Um, okay, looking at the uh, confession, we see in uh, confessions that you get a, um, a quote that only infallible rule of faith and practice um, talking about scripture. And some of the critics, or not critics, some of the liberal uh, theologians have kind of turned that around with their own quote, and they say that um, scripture is only infallible when it speaks of faith and practice. Well, you can see the problem there. There's a huge difference between those two statements. Um, the first, in the first statement, that scripture is uh, the only infallible rule of faith and practice, the term only restricts um, authority to the Bible alone. Only the Bible is authoritative in that sense. But uh, for the second, the second term there, only infallible when it speaks of faith and practice, that instead would be uh, a limited authority, meaning it's not that the Bible is the only authority. It means that when the Bible speaks, it's only authoritative when it comes to faith and practice. Well, that would mean that it's not inerrant or authoritative in other matters, right? So it could, for example, make errors about history, errors about science, anything not related to faith and practice. Um, so for the Christian life, faith and practice uh, is what we believe and what we do. Uh, so it's basically how we run our lives. Um, so, okay, we already talked about, okay, it could be, in, in this view, it could be mistaken in history or science if we believe that. So for the church, the authority of the Bible rests on the authority of Christ. And so that's important uh, to think about, that the, the authority of the Bible rests on the authority of Christ. So we look at what was Jesus's view of Scripture. And, our, and to suggest that our view, therefore, should be the same as his, of what, you know, no higher, no lower, of his same view of Scripture. Um, but we only know Jesus's, here's the problem, we only know Jesus's view of, of the Bible by reading the Bible, right? So skeptics and uh, scholars will, of course, point that out, uh, liberal scholars. So, but the thing is, even skeptics and liberal scholars agree that portions of Scripture regarding Jesus' statements about Scripture are, in fact, reliable. So they believe that Jesus was a historic human and that 
He believed and taught an exalted view of Scripture that was common to first century Judaism, that it was, in fact, the inspired word of God. In fact, we look at Scripture and we see quotes from Jesus like, not one jot or tittle, or it is written, um, and many other examples. So even the skeptics and liberal scholars agree that that was Jesus' view of Scripture. Um, so here, here's where this breaks down then. Critics teach that Jesus was wrong in his view of Scripture. So uh, what, does, what does that lead us to? If we follow that logic out, so these so-called Christian theologians have corrected Jesus in effect and think it's okay that he was wrong about his view of Scripture. Um, they base it on his human nature not being omniscient, meaning he doesn't know everything in his human nature, only his divine nature. And there is support for that because we do see uh, in the Bible, like he even mentions, only the Father knows the day and the hour of my return. So we, we could agree that in his human nature, not his divine nature, that he's not omniscient. So that's where the critics come in, and therefore they argue that um, because he wasn't omniscient in his human nature, that he didn't know he was teaching an error about Scripture, because he didn't know everything. Okay, so the Orthodox scholars, of course, respond that, yes, Jesus uh, indeed was not omniscient in his human nature, but here's the thing, Christ must be sinless to be our Savior. And it would be sinful to teach as fact something they cannot be sure of. They must qualify that. A good teacher would say either I don't know or here are the possibilities and perhaps I lean this way or I agree with this possibility, but you do not teach it as a fact. So, um, Jesus, in effect, Jesus would have sinned to teach divine authority of the Bible as fact and yet be wrong about it. That indeed would be an actual sin, and he would no longer be sinless. So for liberal theologians to be okay with Jesus teaching something that was wrong, yet still a sufficient sinless Savior, you can't have it both ways. It doesn't, you know, they can't both be true. Um, so the problem is we have now a whole generation of theologians now believing that Jesus is not trustworthy uh, on the matter of Scripture, but is trustworthy otherwise. So if we look at it as ra rather than a circular argument, if we start with the idea that the Bible is reliable enough at, at a basic level to show that Jesus was a prophet, which even critics agree, uh, liberal theologians agree, that he indeed was a prophet, then if that prophet Jesus says the Bible is divinely inspired... We can, it's not a circular argument um, because it's a progressive argument. We're starting with the Bible is trustworthy enough to tell us who the prophets were, right? We just start there. Okay, now the Bible says Jesus was the great prophet. So we know Jesus is a prophet. Then the, we know that Jesus taught that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So either he was correct about that, or he was wrong, in which case he himself, the God-man, made a mistake, he erred, and therefore was not you know, sinless, and therefore not a sufficient Savior. So the whole thing falls apart 
if you believe that Jesus was a prophet, yet wrong in what he taught. Um, so, the, the Bible is divinely inspired. We conclude not from circular argument, but from a progressive argument that the Bible is infallible and inerrant. So uh, after we watch our video, we'll go through our review, we'll do our discussion, and I also want to look at um, our chapter one of our confession. I know we're, we're about, we're past halfway point on looking at uh, scripture before we move into more specific uh, areas, but I think it would be a good kind of pause to look at chapter one. The reason why I haven't done paragraph by paragraph in the confession is because it doesn't quite line itself up that way. When we read it, you'll see that like multiple paragraphs in the chapter um, deal with infallibility of Scripture, um, so it doesn't line itself up perfectly. But I think this is a good pausing point to look at that chapter. All right, so we're going to stop, watch our video, and then we'll come back. All right, so we've now looked at our video. Let's do a overview and discuss. So introduction, higher criticism in recent centuries has attached uh, Scripture's infallibility and inerrancy. Uh, these have attacked, sorry, that should say attacked. These concepts are critical if the Bible is to serve as the authoritative rule for faith and life. Overview. Nature of Scripture. Infallibility and inerrancy have come under attack, and these matters must be dealt with when discussing the nature of Scripture. Inerrancy of Scripture. It is alleged that inerrancy is a creation of Protestant scholasticism of the 17th century and an unknown concept to the biblical writers and reformers. But Luther stated that the scriptures never err, despite not using the exact word inerrancy. While some arguments for inerrancy can appear simplistic and faulty, that does not mean inerrancy is indeed false. In infallibility of scripture Infallibility is a higher concept and claim than inerrancy. Something or someone can be uh, without error on a matter, but that doesn't mean that that something or someone is incapable of ever erring. Conservative view teaches that the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Liberal view sometimes distorts this phrase to only infallible when it speaks to matters of faith and practice. The first view uses only to mean the Bible is unique. The second view uses only to restrict the Bible to a limited infallibility, that is, only to certain sections of Scripture. Authority of Scripture. The question of the Bible's authority rests upon Christ's authority. Scholars agree that the question of what did Jesus think about the Bible is paramount. Even liberal scholars agree that Christ had an exalted view of Scripture. Although Christ's human nature does mean that the incarnate God was not omniscient, nevertheless, to be sinless, Christ could not have taught anything contrary to truth. An incorrect prophet is a false prophet. Re reliability of Scripture. If the Bible is a basic, reliable historical document, then what it accounts about Jesus' teaching are reliable. And if Jesus, Jesus taught that the Bible is divinely inspired then either it is divinely inspired or else nothing Jesus taught can be considered reliable. So questions and answers. Um, what word is used to highlight the Bible's unique infallibility? Only. 
Can scripture be infallible and not be inerrant? No, right? If Jesus could have been wrong about anything he taught, what attribute would be lost? His sinlessness. What do we not have assurance in if we reject the Bible as inerrant in any way? In Christ. What do we believe when we say the Bible is the only rule for faith and practice? That Jesus Christ himself delegated this rule. It is alleged that inerrancy is a creation of what theological movement, and as we discussed, the 17th century scholasticism. So discussion, uh, what are the definitions of the terms infallible and inerrant? What did we learn that those mean? Infallibility is, is uh, can never be wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, never. <laughs> right. <clears throat> and how is that different from inerrancy? Hmm. It basically comes down to Cannot and does not, right? Mm-hmm. If something is errant, it does not err. If something is infallible, it cannot err. So that's why inerrancy flows from infallibility, right? You, you, if you're infallible, you have to be inerrant. But you could be inerrant and not be infallible, as we saw. Uh, what was Christ's view of the Bible? That it's infallible. And <laughs> <laughs> like Correct, but why? <laughs> the word comes from God. It's the word of God, yeah. It's the inspired word of God. What are objections some people have to the perfection of Scripture? Have you dealt with this when, when talking to... To non-believers, or maybe even liberal professing Christians, do they they object to the idea that Scripture is inerrant and infallible? I, I feel like the the main objection or, or comment I always hear is contradiction. Mm. But I mean, I don't, you know, it's. In my experience, it's a contradiction. It's like, well, where exactly? And it's like, well, it doesn't go really deeper than that. <laughs> right. Have you studied it? Well, not really. Well, and, that, and that's, I don't think that's the answer yeah, we're looking for here. But. Well, that's interesting, though, because the very next question in our discussion, how do you explain apparent errors in the Bible? Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, as Arthur said, what, what do you do when someone comes to you and says, well, the Bible, Bible clearly contradicts itself? What, what, what's the response to that? I think uh, uh, probably a good summary might be, um, you know, dig deeper. You, you haven't studied the Bible enough then to, to understand that these apparent errors are not actual errors. Um, 
a lot of people point out like the uh, eyewitness accounts and and the um, gospels, like uh, after after the resurrection, right? And you know, and, and one account has only you know this person there, and another account has other people there. And they say, oh, look, contradiction, right? The Bible's contradicting itself. It's an error. Obviously, the Bible can't be trusted. But when you look at it a little closer, you say, now, wait a minute. This this one gospel didn't say that was the only person there. It just happened to mention that person and not mention others, whereas this, this eyewitness mentioned more people. doesn't mean that that was wrong or that there's a conflict. It would be if it said, the only person there was this, and then they said, well, there were three people there. That would be a conflict, but that's not what we see in the Bible. Um, another another might be, uh, uh, what, what am I thinking of? What's the, I'm trying to think of the, the uh, verse in, in James that people often use to try to refute um, uh, faith alone. Um, what is that verse? Sorry, it's flying out of my head. But the, the point I'm trying to make is when you see an apparent error, if you dig deeper and you study, and in this case, if you look at the context in which that verse is stated, you'll understand that it wasn't talking about salvation theology, right? So there actually isn't an error there. You're talking about two different things. You're comparing apples and oranges. But because you you don't dig deeper and do the exegetical work to figure that out, you just look at it on the surface level and say, this says this, this says that, there's an error. There's a conflict. This all reminds me of the, um, uh, the, the temptations of Christ. You know, It's like wordplay. Taking uh-huh. everything out of content, you know, when, when the devil said what he said to Jesus, like, and you say, oh, doesn't the word say this, 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 and that? And, well, Jesus, what did he do? He exactly went deeper. You know, it's like, well, it also says this and that. So, right. you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like, like these arguments back here. Seems like all the arguments and these, um, these, uh, uh, which are all new. Some of these arguments against these things I've never even heard before. Like, well, who said that? <laughs> but anyway, where it's all, it's like word playing, like this only thing back here, right? Mm-hmm. Where they just kind of restructure the phrase a little bit. Yeah, it's like and you could I could even see where it's like okay, oh here it is, infa- the only infallible rule, and they took rule. And changed it to when it speaks. And it's like, wow, but so they dug in a dictionary and a thesaurus and found other descriptions for the word rule, right? <laughs> and, and like pieced it together. So they're kind of saying it's the same thing, yeah. but it's not. Absolutely not. Well, and we see that a lot it's like semantics, today. Yeah, but we see that a lot today that they've already drawn a conclusion and now they need to make it fit their conclusion. Rather than drawing the conclusion based upon the evidence. So, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. They've already drawn the conclusion that the Bible can't be infallible and inerrant. Therefore, we have to figure out how to make this work that Jesus is still the Savior, but the Bible's not inerrant. So, like you say on that that really quick drive-by surface view... Oh, sure, I guess you could. You're like, well, hey, obvious contradiction, or how can this be, and... Well, yeah, you have to use the Bible to prove the Bible or to try to disprove it. Like, mm-hmm. but 
you got to get into it. (laughs) (laughs) Got to get in there and, you know, like you say, dig deeper. Right. Context. And then there's always, I always found interesting the actual meanings of the, um, like original, uh, you know, Greek and those like you know when things are translated to English I think that's a popular thing too is taking English words right so, oh I can't think of it a good example but you know what I mean where it's like mm-hmm. well obviously it, it it's wrong because it says it's like well yeah but when you decipher it from Greek it's got a deeper different meaning right or even the fact that Eng- in English yeah even the fact that English changes over time right our, our words uh, you know, if they don't completely change definition, they may change in some nuance or in some some way. And so, when the translators from you know 200 years ago translated it with this word, and now we use this English word differently today, but you know, the average reader comes along and reads this, and and now suddenly they're they're getting a different view of what Scripture is saying here. So yes, you do have to be a a, a student of the Bible and and dig deeper. Yeah. Okay, so finally I have written down, uh, let's read chapter 1 of our Baptist Confession of Faith. This is the chapter entitled, Of Holy Scripture. As I mentioned before, we're... Uh... Do you mind if I grab a copy of Yeah, yeah, please do. Grab your copy if you've got it. It's not terribly long, so it won't take too long to go through. And I'm going to get under the light here a little bit. Chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures, paragraph 1. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, and we looked at that before in our previous sessions, right? Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church, and afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, and the malice of Satan, and of the world, to to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So yeah, a lot of that corresponds to uh, what we talked earlier about special revelation versus natural revelation. But you see, we start off right from the very beginning talking about the infallible rule. Mm -hmm. Paragraph 2. Under the name of Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these, and I won't read them all off right now, but um, that gets into canonicity, which we'll be looking at next time. All of which are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. Again, that's something we looked at today. Paragraph 3. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are not part of the canon or rule of the scripture, and therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. 
So it's interesting to know it's not saying they're useless, they're just not uh, inspired word of God. Paragraph 4. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore it is to be received, because it is the word of God. Which is exactly what Jesus taught, right? <laughs> Paragraph 5. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the Church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures, and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Again, talks about infallible truth, divine authority. Paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the Church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. Paragraph 7. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. So that speaks to the, the clarity of salvation, right, in God's Word, um, but admitting there are some also heady theological things in God's Word as well. But uh, those things aren't necessary to understand your salvation. <laughs> Paragraph 8. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God, and by His singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have a right unto an interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. 
Praise the Lord that we have translations in so many languages, right? Paragraph 9. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So we interpret Scripture through Scripture. Paragraph 10. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. The authority of Scripture there. So you can see how the infallibility there and, and divine inspiration of Scripture pops up in, in multiple paragraphs. So, but I think it was good that we went through that with this discussion. Okay, so uh, any other thoughts or comments on what we learned today? No. It's great. All right, well, Arthur, do you mind closing us in prayer? Sure. <clears throat> Lord God, we're so grateful to you for your word, Lord, that we've been discussing tonight, God, the, the infallibility and the inerrancy, Lord, that we have your word that we can always look to and know to be true, God. We know that you are the true God. We thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us together tonight that we can uh, discuss these things and cement even deeper our, our beliefs and our faith. God, so thank you for bringing us together safely tonight. Lord, I pray for all of us as we uh, go home and keep us safe and, uh, and sound in our, um, the folks that couldn't make it tonight, Lord, that you uh, bless them as well, Lord. And um, again, thank you so much for your word, Lord, that we do have this, that we can uh, do our do our best to to uh, walk by and to to learn and to go deeper, Lord, so that we don't make mistakes in our interpretation of the word, Lord. Um, we thank you, Lord, for uh, uh, speaking through Kyle tonight, Lord, to bring, bring this uh, knowledge to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you.